0: Why be in a union if you don't believe in the power of collective action? Why then become president of your branch? Leave the organising to people who do believe in the fundamental principles of the workers' organisation you've joined. Hello listeners and welcome to a special edition of the Unions 21 podcast. We are delighted to present... What must be an exclusive interview with the general secretary-elect of the University and Colleges Union, Dr. Joe Grady from the University of Sheffield. We spoke to Joe a couple of months ago before she announced her intention to run for the top job, and it's a fascinating insight into her academic work and her experiences and motivation as a trade unionist. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, I give you Dr. Joe Grady. Okay, well, well, Becky, who said? Why be in a union if you don't believe in the power of collective action? Why then become president of your branch? Leave the organizing to people who do believe in the fundamental principles of the workers' organization you've joined. I'll give you a clue. She's sitting opposite you. <laughs>
1: oh, well that makes it a lot easier. To say. Is it Dr. Joe Grady?
0: It's Dr. Joe Grady. Hey, sounded like me. <laughs> Joe, welcome to the podcast and thank you thank you for joining us. I mean that 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 was taken from your tweet, your Twitter feed. And, and perhaps we'll get to your, your personal involvement in the, the University and colleges union uh, a little later if we may. But could we start off with your one of your most recent papers? which Talks about trade unions and the challenging uh, the challenge of fostering solidarities in an era of financialization.
1: Mm. We firstly, explain to me what financialization Ooh, is. Oh, that's a bit
0: accusatorial.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I just mean it's like
0: it's a big word, it's a big word, many syllables actually. Yeah. Uh, so, so. That,
2: I, I'll start with that paper and, and, yeah, and yeah, hopefully yeah. kind of flesh out some of the um, questions. So, Mel and I, who's the co author on that paper, um came together because I obviously research financialization and Mel's main research, well, she's got lots of different types of research, but she's been looking at how we build solidarities amongst um, different types of workers. And with my work on pensions, one of the um, alarming kind of issues where there doesn't seem to be much solidarity is between the interests of young and old people. Yeah. Um, there's lots of discussion about you know how older people are swindling um, the younger generations and baby boomers. And for me, all of that actually works against solidarity because if we're basically looking at what the baby boomers have and that they had affordable housing and that they could get a mortgage and that house prices hadn't spiralled at that time, that many of them are looking as if they're going to retire with a decent pension whereas people starting don't have those things, um, that almost seems like a a kind of a bridge that can't um, find...
1: It's almost insurmountable, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and I don't think it's actually a helpful starting point. Mm. Well it's
0: classic divide and rule isn't it, But all on generational terms.
1: Look, it's a bit like, like, look young people, look what all these old people are swinging you out of. Gold-plated pensions. gold-plated pensions. Yeah,
2: and I think, you know, when we analyse and critique the employment relationship we are very fast to say that we shouldn't have a race to the bottom, right, so yeah. we we say that public sectors we, we should work hard to defend what they have rather than say well I don't get it because I'm in the private sector and I'm like well we should really take the same approach yeah. to saying well you know why have some generations been able to maintain that and why have we been comfortable or not maintain that fight to ensure that those protections and benefits and and all of those types of things continue to apply so that paper was really about saying there are huge solidarities there and actually what we see anecdotally but i don't think that there's lots of great data on it is often it's grandparents now that are kind of transferring wealth down to younger mm, generations yep. yeah, so the idea yeah. that you know young people are shafted and older people don't care I, I mean from my community and my family i just don't see that as being the case so mm, that paper mm. was more about from our kind of chats over cups of tea and stuff because we used to work together about saying well how do we as trade unionists try and and address what appears to be an environment where there aren't solidarities and actually pinpoint that I think there was something to do with political language that was being used at the time that we decided on that paper but rather than pitting generations against each other saying actually there are intergenerational solidarities here um, that need to be addressed in the trade unions if they want to organize different groups of workers have to demonstrate that those solidarities exist and that you know that does take a strong message and a political campaign really i think from from trade unions
0: Gosh, so I mean, did... yeah, it's a lot. You, well, no, <laughs> I mean, well, it, it, but straight away we move from the sort of academic research work into into the area of, of practicalities and how power is w- works and and to what end it's used within organisations, include including unions. Did your research point to any areas of, of good practice or best practice where actually that nettle had been grasped?
2: So, in the paper, we look at the junior doctors' dispute mm. um, a little bit. We we don't we don't spend a lot of time on lots of different disputes but we do analyze some and I think that was a really good example of a dispute that you know had overwhelming public support we don't see that you know teachers when they go on strike they do not get this kind of overwhelming um public support and I think that that was a a key area and I'd done some research on junior doctors before as well about the the moral economy and Mm. the idea that that dispute became and I think this is it when disputes transcend the issue that The dispute was originally called about so the Mm. dispute for the junior doctors obviously was um, about the contract but the motto um, of that dispute was not safe not fair and that fairness and safeness and the idea Mm, that mm. junior doctors almost became the protectors of the idea of the NHS rather than just their contract change Mm, and mm. I think that that was a good example of a dispute that managed to actually connect people and show mm. that we as citizens should have a solidarity with those workers and mm. I don't know if you did but I'm a bit of a nerd and I went and hung out on some of the picket lines during the junior <laughs> doctors dispute and well, um funny
1: you should say that. <laughs> there was lots
2: of good food on those picket lines people brought food. stuff it was and the USS strike was quite similar people nourishing each other yeah. on picket yeah, lines yeah. and there was huge support there was like bus drivers tooting in their horns there was people who who were retired who came mm. and stood on mm. those picket lines and I think that that's something about when you can make a workplace issue that yes is a clearly a workplace issue it's about your terms and conditions and your contract but you can demonstrate that actually the attempt to attack or degrade or deteriorate those things to do with your employment contract Mm. a representative of a political struggle Mm -hmm. and I think that was definitely the case with the junior doctors dispute it was the case for us with our USS dispute and it underpins really most of the challenges that people Mm. have in their workplaces I think then it's about how you actually make that apparent and for me I do work with concepts such as financialization and neoliberal ideology and things like that because really that's the way in which you can say all this stuff that you don't really understand and the pressures to um, you know, derive profit where you didn't, you didn't have sure. to see it before. Yeah, yeah. That, that's where we then have to create that narrative and explain to people why these pressures are happening rather than saying you shouldn't have it because I don't have it. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I think
2: mm. you know, zero-hour contracts is, is one of the things that I use when I teach. You know, they have squeezed out paying for non-productive labor. Mm. So for a lot of organizations, it's difficult to extract any more value from your workforce through those means. And that's why we see a tax on pensions because yeah. they're really the last frontier mm. of a new form of, in my academic work, I call it appropriation, um, of, of that value back from your staff. Mm.
1: I, so there's a couple of things I was just thinking as you were talking about, firstly, the junior doctor strike. And I remember, it's a sort of family anecdote for, for us because... I remember when the BMJ started sending out its kind of literature, like it kind of became a regular sort of front bit of the of the BMJ. And my partner, who's a consultant, was like, they will, like, this will never happen. Like, they will never go on strike. They will never, like, this is, mm. like, from the, he was like, you know, sheffield uh lads working class lad who would be like you know, up for it yeah <laughs> jeff wednesday <plan>. yes <laughs> <laughs> but um you know i remember him sort of saying this you know morally how does this fit with us looking after our patients by the end of that education process that the union had started to do he was like uh yeah fine we're all on it and i thought it was really when you talk about the intergenerational kind of solidarity what i what really struck me was how the consultants were willing to do the, all of the extra stuff how they were willing to f- like kind of it was really hard for the, you to find a consultant that was willing to um undermine the junior doctors you know yeah. like when they interviewed you know I remember an interview on the BBC where they were in a kind of busy A E and you just saw all of you just saw all the consultants coming down kind of going yeah okay let's get stuck in and, and do that and and it was one of those first sort of things for me where I felt Like you could really demonstrate that into like the uh, the ability to do that kind of intergenerational kind of solidarity. Yeah, but but hang on a minute. Is
0: the the thing about junior doctors and the the more their more senior colleagues is is as you say there is a clear moral dimension Mm. that is accessible to most people. But how? Yeah,
1: but sorry, go on. Go on.
0: on. (laughs) But, But 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 what if you don't have that? Okay, and and that that yeah, that, no, that moral, moral capture will affect consultants as well. Yeah, as but what I'm saying, yeah, yeah.
1: But what I'm saying is, it would have been very easy for the consultants to have left left the junior doctors high and dry. Do you know what I mean? There is there was a solidarity that was kind of then built into the messaging that the that the uni did internally, or at least what I saw, to try and get that mm. that together. And I think you're and that whole idea of you know, people trust their doctors, don't they? They trust their nurses. They trust people who in those sort of roles. And when you go to, like, we go regularly to one particular hospital, and we, you know, you saw everybody in the picket picket line, and everybody happily taking badges as we, my kids were like, stickered up to the max with balloons and everything, going into the hospital, and everybody was like, oh yeah, yay, like that. So there was there's all of that kind of stuff. But how do you do that? when like, you've got your cleaners because I, I totally get it you know pensions is that last thing that you can extract profit from isn't it you yeah. know if you're outsourcing slash the contributions we've got to make to give you a decent pension
2: yeah but I think I mean I'm really despite all the evidence of the research that I do really optimistic if you look at a lot of what I think are some of the more innovative and grassroots union campaigning and action that's occurring in the uk at the minute it is for people standing with and standing for precarious workers who are being outsourced who are being bullied um who are being made bogus Mm self-employed and they are making small but significant gains in those areas and sometimes that then you know sets a precedent for a new kind of of legal framework or or sometimes it just shows employers that no you can't just Mm. keep coming for people Mm, and mm. you know I'm not suggesting that we see this everywhere in the UK but to Mm. me the fact that you are seeing that does give me hope and I think the fact that acknowledging this and articulating it as a political struggle Mm. is really important because I think the trade union movement did lose its way Mm. in terms of actually seeing this as a as, as Labour struggle, as a political struggle, and, and necessarily thinking that if we, you know, kind of clip the uh, claws and fangs of capitalism a little bit, then it'll all be okay. And I think it's quite clear mm. that, that that didn't happen. Mm. And I think part of that junior doctor solidarity mm. that you did see from from more senior consultants, pure speculation on my part, but um, for what it's worth, I think part of that was a a sense of responsibility that they'd sort of failed a little Mm. bit and that actually the extent to which the health service had got to where it was Mm. was partly their collective responsibility Mm. and that this Mm. was one last shove if you like no idea if that's actually accurate but and I think the other similarity with the junior doctors dispute that we saw on our USS picket lines is yes the union played a really important role but actually people really educated each other
1: yeah yeah
2: and as someone who stood on a lot of junior doctor picket lines and went to their rallies the innovation and methods that they use to communicate their methods to each other because you like they share a workplace, but they don't share a workplace really with each other. Like, they might see a few other junior doctors, but their work pattern really... So their sense of organisation and and how they got everything together is quite staggering, really. And the the effective way in which they communicated and obviously because they're highly educated people, when they were interviewed in the media, they just wiped the floor with With anybody who who Mm -hmm. tried to come for them because, Mm -hmm. one, they were right and they're incredibly articulate. And, you know, part of their... Um, training is to look at evidence and to kind of make decisions based on that and they were just perfect ambassadors for their own
1: dispute yeah yeah but yeah.
0: If, you, if you read across from from the junior doctor's dispute to the uss yeah. dispute, the university superannuation a superannuation the scheme, and, well, 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 A tongue twister there's a lot <laughs> of acronyms in,
2: in yeah.
0: uh, but but there are, there are some things that, that they have in common in the sense that there was this kind of intersectionality I suppose one calls it these days between between the generations in the sense that the students were hugely supportive of UCU yeah mem, 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 members in dispute but but you could say that the consultants would support junior doctors and that junior doctors would would recognize value of teamwork because it's all about teamwork if you work if you work well, in the health, health service, there's a culture of collaborative yeah. working that's perhaps not quite the same in the universe mm. the university sector so What do you think the similarities are that led to that intergenerational support, not just in health, but in the dispute that you were involved in, your union was involved in?
2: So I firmly believe that what we saw during the USS dispute with the coming together of of different stakeholders, if you like, of, of higher education, students being one of them, was precisely what Mel and I outlined in that paper. It's about people acknowledging that the solidarity that they have and the shared interest that they have are far greater than the market experiment being applied to higher education. I think mm. universities were desperate to weaponize students against staff, and it just did not happen. I'm not saying every student you know, supported yeah, the strike bit, yeah. or whatever, mm-hmm. um, but in all of the sort of polls that were conducted there wasn't this overwhelming idea that students absolutely hated what was happening. And up and down campuses, there was teach-outs, you know, pretty much every UCU branch I'm aware of were engaging their students during the dispute. And again, students are just as much victims of the market forces in higher education as staff are. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, the fees that they're charged, um, the absolutely um, absurd prices that they pay in rent are all parts of this market agenda to squeeze as much money out of students and the student experience as possible. And all of the issues, so yes, the dispute was about pensions, but it so rapidly became clear that everybody was absolutely fed up of this market experiment that we have with higher education and the way in which it is seeking to distort what should be... Mm -hmm. going to sound romantic but a beautiful relationship of, of, of learning mm. between staff and students and it's distorting that and I think the strike gave not just students um, a pause to see that but staff rather than being in their offices on their own were chatting to each other on picket lines yeah, and yeah. acknowledging all of these different solidarities staff that maybe um, had never heard about how fierce casualization is uh, were yeah. hearing those stories and I think universities started at the beginning of the dispute to try and really characterise striking staff as not caring and, you know, you're not delivering your lectures, you don't care about your students. And one, the fact that they failed to weaponise students along that agenda, I think is um, indicative that that's not the case, that we do care. But two, up and down the country, you'll probably remember there was quite a number of student occupations. And not in all cases, but in some cases, the universities were really quite... Uh, vicious in their attempts to close down those occupations. There was one where the students were denied access to toilets, basic sanitation, and that is not Mm. a good look from a university. So Mm. so the discourse that we didn't care Mm. when we were on picket lines, doing teach-outs, you know, kind of... And a lot of us had been Mm. part of student demos in 2010 against fees. You know, we didn't become academics to extort students. I think that the narrative that, you know, universities were looking after the kids and it was us being mean, refusing to go into work as a narrative, just absolutely fell apart from, mm. from the early days of that dispute.
1: But also, I th- what the, the thing that has is impressed, or has been impressed upon me, is the fact that pensions isn't often seen as a sexy subject. I mean, I'm trying my best. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, like, you try talk to anybody. Like, I talk to my partner about his pension, and he literally, like, falls asleep. And I'm like, no, pensions are really well, I, important. I can, I can help, help if you want with some lines. <laughs> can you just come along? But the, and this is, but this is the thing. I think, like, I remember being in my twenties and somebody and having to do the whole thing of like a pensions roadshow, and it felt very weird for me to. But but I had seen that said you need to have a pension, so that you know, um, was going around as the face of the union, saying everybody, your pension's going to be changing. And I learnt really quickly about the difference between a defined benefit and a defined contribution. I mean, that scheme. isn't sexy.
2: In fairness, those kind no, of technical those sort details. Of things, no, (laughs)
1: But it's really, it does make it sound like you know an awful lot more than you really do. But I think there is often this misperception that young people don't care about pensions or that people in general don't care about their pensions. And it's not the same as... A pay dispute, I I would hazard a guess that people say it's easier to mobilise and organise around a pay dispute than it would be around a pensions dispute because it's kind of a little bit ethereal. People don't really understand a lot of the technicalities around it. It's not. Some people can sometimes go, well, that's over in the future. And the thing that both the junior doctor strike and also the USS strike seem to kind of dispel that as Mm. a thing because you would see established academics, new academics all coming together to say this is a really important thing and he didn't feel like you had your kind of closer to retirement academics defending the pension and kind of leaving the kind mm. of newer academics out of the discussion it felt very much like everybody was Together, does that kind of... Is that... Am I missing something or is that just a... Uh... I mean, I I wouldn't necessarily say if you
2: look at a lot of the high-profile disputes that we've had in the UK over the last decade, it's difficult
1: to get people out on pensions. We've had quite a lot of... But we haven't had much... I mean... I've, we haven't I've had been, many wins. I was going to say, I was going <laughs> to... As an off-the-record, yeah, but we've had some atrocious losses around that. Yeah, And yeah. actually, like, I think the... Pub, I remember being at the CEC when the public sector pension stuff was going on and actually, like... we we did well in terms of what was available at the time. But I always felt like the loss was we didn't bring people with us. But I also
2: think that part of the accepted dominant logic is you can't win on pensions. And I think that there's an absolute complete lack of any ambition or vision in terms of actually saying no. Your, your methodologies and the way in which you value schemes are inappropriate. And actually the way in which you value schemes is in introducing risk, which mm. then actually makes the pension unsustainable. And the USS dispute, I wish as a pensions researcher had happened five years ago or more, because I'm convinced that there will be some um, defined benefit schemes still open. Yeah. Because it really, Stopped and, and it was this, it was the staff on picket lines that yeah. just said, this instinctively doesn't feel right. yeah, And yeah. then like, All of the research that we know happened and then we eventually had the um, joint expert panel vindicated all of those claims. And I think that that lack of vision on behalf of a lot of trade unions where they just accepted that very kind of neoliberal view of pensions Mm. as being we cannot have this anymore, which in itself is an acceptance that companies can pull back from their previous responsibilities to
1: have that kind of relationship with their staff.
2: I think was part of a major problem for trade unions I and remains so.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking more about like the education around pensions so people really understand it and that's not just reps and members but also unions themselves. You know, yeah. if you think about how many unions have pensions. I think maybe there is a, a an argument I'm not wedded to it particularly but the the whole idea of that a lot of unions don't have their pension officers anymore. Like, So they don't have a dedicated person working on all the different types of pensions. And sometimes I think you can be presented with pensions as an officer and go, I don't know the difference between a defi... I mean, a defined benefit and a defined yeah. I wonder if all of that is is part of it. I mean, I'm just completely talking like. I I think for me, I'd take more interested in. Yeah, I would take a step back because I think for
2: a lot of people, particularly younger people entering the employment relationship, you know, unless they've been put into an auto enrollment pension, the idea of discussing detail of pension isn't particularly interesting unless you're about to get shafted and then you want to know every detail of your pension and 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 figure out what's going on for me the way in which I speak about it to my students and and very much um, use it as an entry point for my research is your pension is your deferred wage yeah
1: I love this it is
2: not some gift from your employer that you receive the day after you retire
1: thank you sir very much sir yeah exactly and when people say
2: oh aren't you lucky to have a pension no you're not lucky to have a pension one you've paid into it Mm. and you are entitled to it and two people before you and maybe yourself have fought to keep and maintain that pension so you know we need to kind of move beyond this idea that it's something that we were given and like it can be taken away and I think once you invest people in acknowledging that pension is their deferred wage then people should be concerned about a tax on it or attempts to decrease the value of it's it. It's understanding
1: exactly what that is, isn't it? It's understanding yeah. what the pension is and how it relates to you. Because, essentially, if your employer is
2: able to downgrade your scheme from a defined benefit to a defined contribution and slash, you know, 200k off the future value of your scheme, you know, I'm very clear about I see it as wage theft, um, yeah, you know, yeah. they're potentially, you know, it's kind of a theft of historic wages because mm-hmm. things that have gone in before have just been downgraded. And um, potentially, it's a theft of what's going on at the minute if that's used as an excuse to downgrade their contributions because their contributions is part of your salary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's a theft into the future. And I think that we, if we understand what's going on, need to be a lot more forceful in explaining what these things are. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I
0: would agree with that. I would agree that, that, that I think there are a number of parts to this, this debate. I think that pensions and the notion of deferred income is difficult for many people, especially if they haven't been in the labour market that long, to get hold of. Partly because when you're young, you never think you're going to be old. Well, you think everything's (laughs) going to be rubbish anyway, probably. Yeah, Yeah. now you're at a place where you're like, we're all pretty screwed. But but actually, that's that's hard-boiled now into the psyche of of people entering the job market now, which which is, it's a precarious existence and you've got nothing. And it's all their fault, the older generation fault, the baby boomers, or whatever. So I wonder if if actually one of the, the really big takeaways from the USS dispute and the junior doc- doctors dispute is even though the dispute, especially the USS dispute, obviously was primarily about pensions and and the importance of pensions for all the reasons that you've described, Joe. But actually, the support came not because all the supporting younger people thought pensions a really important issue. They they thought this is not fair. Yeah, this yeah. This is not was a right. Fairness. And you? then the dividend is is. W- is once they've, once they've joined the campaign, because they mm-hmm. think it, there's a zeitgeist that says, this is not fair, this is not right, if it's happening to them now, it could happen to us n- next week, they then think, well, what is this dispute about? And they become literate and knowledgeable about pensions, yeah, and yeah. that gets us over that that kind of Rubicon, as it were, yeah, in, in terms yeah, of, of from ignorance to understanding.
2: I would completely agree with that, yep. I mm. think that that's a really um, insightful way of seeing it, and, yeah, I think um, that's kind of what we need to do more with our disputes and struggles. Because I think that unfairness, that kind of, you're looking at all the facts and you just can't see why this is being done for any other reason than to cut costs, and that staff are the main cost to be minimized for most organizations. And I think that absolutely... um, Nails it. I think, you know, just that sort of searing-in-your-belly feeling of unfairness um, was there in the junior doctor's dispute as well. It just didn't seem fair. The morality of it Um, all. And, you know, nobody expects the world to be fair or whatever. But when you can really see it as they're just taking it because they can, was really, you know, and particularly with pensions, one of the things that I try and do with my research is demonstrate that a lot of these crises in schemes or perceived deficits anomaly technical deficits that are there because of evaluation methodologies and those methodologies themselves kind of geared towards helping create the very problems that then say the solution is to wind up the scheme it's a problem of its own creating in that sense
1: and i do think just that the what was great as an outsider which with the uss strike it was to see kind of these communities of practice come together where you could mm. where everybody was educating everybody on it, you know, and, and sharing, like, I saw Mel and Jane doing like, their little primers for everybody on disputes and kind of what it is. And I loved that it was so.
2: Yeah, so USS Briefs came together. through that. And it was very much about all the different perspectives that the different disciplines, it's almost like a kind of a a crack force of academics and university staff, and all of their various. 18. The <laughs> I mean, if you want to call us that, then that's fine. And uh, yeah, and I think that was one of the things that um, was really nice about our strike. And we all lost loads of money because obviously that's what happens when you strike, but it was really nice. And I think that when you work in an environment that's highly marketized and sometimes isn't very nice, actually, it, something felt quite wholesome about it all and but that we solidarity. were. Solidarity. Yeah.
0: In the you know the most yeah, basic yeah. It, it, that's it. That's that's the meaning of solidarity.
2: And I think that keeping that is the next challenge really for 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 our union. Because I think even though that was a moment of, of obvious solidarity where people did come together, that can fragment. Yeah. And
1: it's easily dissipated if it's not kept up. yeah and so where is the dispute at the moment then is it completely it's in the long finished?
2: Grass, I would say <laughs> <laughs> so um the strike action was called off in April last year in a joint expert panel established that panel has three UCU representatives and three UUK which is universities UK mm-hmm. sort of the umbrella body for um, the employer and they published their first report at the end of September and it was a it was a cracker. Vindicated striking staff, really said that the pensions regulator, UUK and USS all had some responsibility to, to shoulder. And put forward some proposals that got us somewhere close to a good agreement, but definitely said that defined benefit was fine. And, and as I say, sort of vindicated a lot of UCU's position, but nothing's really concluded yet. We're still waiting for movement from USS. It looks like they don't want to implement some of the bits of the JEP the JEP, um, that would really sort it out.
1: What's the JEP? That, J-E-P. The
2: Joint Expert Panel. Sorry, I just Sorry. slipped in an acronym there because <laughs> that's annoying. Um, so, yeah, so the, the sticking point at the minute seems to be actually then that some of their, propo- their proposals essentially not being implemented in full. And when you cherry-pick from proposals, you normally don't mm. get something that's very effective. It, it, so that's, that hasn't quite happened yet, but we're, we look, it looks like that's what we're looking at and the JEP has a second report um, so they're just starting to meet now we're in February and I think they've already had their first meeting and just last week and they're looking particularly at the valuation methodology because that's been the the main kind of sticking point with with the USS dispute but it's really difficult to know how effective that second report is going to be because their proposals from the first report haven't been fully um, adopted. So, uh, but and, mm. you know so and that was part of the establishment of the, the joint expert panel. The recommendations were never binding. Mm-mm. So even though some of us were quite um, skeptical about actually the, the report and the, that panel forming, um, you know it did deliver something that was really acceptable to UCU members, but the fact that none of it is binding makes it quite difficult. But I do think that the, the report itself is a real chink in the armor of this sort of hegemonic neoliberal view of pensions as inherently yeah. not being affordable anymore. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's another distinction to draw out, um, and I do in my research, that affordable is not, or unaffordable is not the same as expensive. And any good pension scheme is always going to be expensive because you are putting aside part of your salary so you can use it when you retire. Yeah, Nobody expects it to be cheap, uh, yeah. but that's very different to framing something as unaffordable. And mm. I think that we as trade unions need to sort of, take back that language and stop just absorbing this idea that these things are unaffordable when actually they're just expensive. Well, I
0: mean, to call something unaffordable belies a political perspective, doesn't it? Because, of course, if you have good social care, you have good health care, you have good public services, you have good pensions, because actually it's the most effective way to make sure people retain independent living and they're not a burden on their families themselves, the, the state, you have to invest in it. Yeah. That's why com- That's why countries that traditionally have a high level of happiness and satisfaction, like many of the Scandinavian countries, they, yeah. there's high levels of taxation, high levels of public expenditure. If you call if you call something unaffordable, what it says is, in your political view it's not worth investing in.
2: Oh completely, yeah. I mean if you look at Norway when it comes to pension because of their North Sea Oil, they're like the trust fund brat of Europe, aren't they? Yeah, They've yeah, just yeah, got, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're like, we've got our sovereign wealth fund, <laughs> we're fine, with yeah. all our oil money. I, you do see it all. <laughs> <laughs> that could have been us.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you do if see probably, those things that yeah. they invested yeah. by Norwegian
2: pensions and you're like. Damn, yeah, trust yeah. fund brats. Yeah. Um no, no, no offense. Like that, that sounds dismissive. That was, a, that was a joke. Just jealous. Yep. Um,
0: <laughs> as are we. As, as, are, as are we all. Joe, I mean, can, can I can ask? I mean, you clearly very active in the USS dis- dispute. Yeah. Uh, and, and lots of us were. And, and look, but but was, were you active before then? Have you always been a, a kind of active in your your union or unions?
2: So. Uh, Yes and no. Different types of active. So I, uh, even before I joined UCU, um, when I was an undergraduate at Lancaster, I joined my lecturers on an AUT picket because I'm from a trade union family. My dad, when I was born in 1984, was a striking minor. So the idea that, you know, I would cross a picket or or anything like that is just absolutely uh, not in my blood. I've always been interested and I studied essentially industrial relations at university. So when I got my funding and started postgraduate studies, the first thing I did was join. Um, But beyond being a kind of a a normal engaged type of union member and standing on picket lines and what have you, I wouldn't say I was particularly active, although that's a form of active. Then when I was at the University of Leicester, I got very active in my branch. I became the co branch secretary and was was heavily involved with my region, but particularly my branch. When the USS dispute happened in 2018, because obviously we've had previous USS disputes, I don't know, because it was basically the end of our defined benefit pension, so we'd already lost our final salary pension in a previous dispute, it really just felt if we don't absolutely throw everything at this, it's gone. And obviously the research that I've done, the direction of travel is this is gone, but I wanna know that we put up the best fight possible. Yeah. So initially, um, I don't think at Sheffield I was any more involved than everybody else who was on picket lines every day. But I think the unique relevance, that I'm literally an industrial relations researcher that researches pension <laughs> disputes, <laughs> it's like, yeah. and, and the politics of pensions, and why they come for your mm. pension, and how it's usually based on actually a bit of a fabricated um, deficit. I just really felt that like, if I don't really get involved in this and trying to articulate and explain it. And I wasn't alone, you know, there was other people who maybe weren't quite doing the same thing as me, but were using their skills to, to do yeah. similar activities. Um, you know, Sam Dolan, Sam Marsh, uh, you know, lots and lots of different types of people. And then as we got towards, that, there was offers on the table. Um, that's when I think that a real kind of mobilisation of people who really wanted to carry on seeing the dispute through um, took off. So that was when me, along with... Felicity Callard, Andrew Chitty, um, Leon Rocher, Nick Hardy, I probably missed a few other names, set up USS Briefs to try and actually continue that picket line education in evidence-based briefing materials. We've done a few podcasts, though nothing as profesh as this. Um, <laughs> You're too kind. <laughs> so basically, yeah, so that led to a, a different type of activity, more, if you like, of a, a, a an attempt to nationally engage people. Mm. And I think I'm not alone in this, that during that dispute, we were starved of what we felt was information you know yeah. from, from every party
1: yeah which for an academic as well do yeah you know what we i mean you like you will you like, know, you, you live on it don't you
2: well obviously it, all obviously, types food of food is useful yeah
1: <laughs> all types of university staff were on strike
2: but i think particularly for researchers you know we were there with nothing to do and we couldn't do our own research we were like going to start reading everything on the USS website. <laughs> I'm going to start reading all of these documents. Yeah, uh, yeah. don't give people who research for a living like, time, off. time off. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it wasn't time off, but you get what I'm saying. Um, So I think that then not only led to people doing their investigations about UUK, who works there, USS, who's the executive, what are they doing. Yeah. This real push uh, for transparency from our employer, from the person who runs our pension scheme, a lot of us started turning that lens in on our on our own union as well and i think that definitely led to me wanting to get more involved when the national dispute committee was established for uss i was like i think i could be really helpful on that it's been a bit of a journey but i think there's other people who would say they've shared such an accelerated yeah, yeah, um, yeah. journey in the last 12 months with me
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> joe i mean thanks thanks for spending time with us and being so candid and in articulate in your in, in your views that it's been absolutely fascinating one of the things we always ask our guests who are from an academic background is to signpost us towards fellow academics who you feel have got something useful or unique to say who you think our listeners would be interested in hearing Kirsty um, yeah.
2: a colleague of mine at the University of Sheffield she is doing absolutely amazing and really important work on again a subject that you might think hmm? on parcel delivery workers and on the way in which their working lives are absolutely micromanaged. The attempts to control what they do, you know, she's spent time with them in their vans, doing the routes with them, doing some really solid, fascinating research. She can really tell you about the story of the working conditions of the people that deliver our stuff and that, you know, nobody really cares about. Mm. There's definitely get Kirsty, she's great. And she's another strong Yorkshire woman. So oh, there you go. She's very much about looking at how they try and, you know, and extract profit from every possible type of activity and monitor, attempt to monitor and control. But then also, you know, the the acts of resistance because yes. people always mm. manage to find oh. ways, even in the most hostile of regime, to resist.
1: Oh, fascinating.
0: That sounds like one we will certainly follow up. <laughs> Joe, thanks so much. You're welcome. Yeah. Well, listeners, I hope you found that a valuable, interesting, and entertaining insight uh, into what Jo is going to bring to her new job as General Secretary of the UCU. We wish her every success uh, in this new chapter of her life and recognise that uh, the loss to academic research into HR and IR and trade unions is certainly going to be the movement's overall gain in her new role. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. It's been our pleasure to have you along. You can find out more about Unions 21 by visiting our website, www.unions21.org.uk. You can join the conversation. We'd love to have your views on this and all of our podcasts by emailing us at info at unions21.org.uk. And you can say hello to us on Twitter at Unions 21. If you're listening to this on a podcasting platform, as you probably are, please do rate us because it helps us bust the algorithms and get the trade union message out to an ever wider audience you can also like and share us of course that's it for this episode this special episode of the unions 21 podcast we'll be back with another episode soon until then goodbye the unions 21 podcast was presented by becky wright and simon sapper it was a makes you think production